This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Those of you who provide care to elderly patients realize the importance a caregiver gives in the care to our older patients. It's estimated that there may be over 30 million individuals in the United States who provide ongoing care to older adults. Half of these to family members with some form of dementia. The majority of the caregivers are female and a significant percentage of these caregivers have their own major health problems. This is a major social and economic issue in the care of our geriatric population. We'll be discussing providing care for the caregiver with Dr. Alicia Morgan, a family physician at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Morgan has completed a fellowship in geriatrics as well as in hospice and palliative care and currently practices palliative care. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you for having me to discuss this very important topic. I agree. You know, there's a couple of things I learned rather quickly in my career in, as a geriatrician. Uh, one is that the social problems that you deal with almost are always more challenging than the medical ones. And second, when you take on a geriatric patient, you also need to take on their caregiver because if, the care, if you lose the caregiver, things change significantly. So this is an important topic. So let's talk a little bit about the morbidity and mortality of a caregiver who provides daily care to an individual with chronic disease. Yeah, there is a lot of evidence that really shows that the well-being of the caregiver is significantly impacted by caregiving. And so in addition to being a very timely and pertinent topic, this uh, issue, particularly of morbidity and mortality, has been increased, I guess, in the time of our COVID pandemic because not only are there more caregivers now, I, you had mentioned, you know, the 30 to 40 million range of caregivers in our country, but the estimates are increasing to 75, 80 million in this time of the pandemic, so significant burden on health of the caregivers. The morbidity and mortality certainly increases both from the stress of being a caregiver, but impacts psychological and physical health of caregivers. And estimates are that, you know, a third suffer from personal health issues on their own. So in addition to the, the care needs that they have personally, they're trying to provide care for a, a loved one who has a chronic illness. Most of the time, our caregivers feel really unprepared to be in this role of a caregiver. And then as the functional status or the illness of the patient that we're providing care for worsens, these burdens increase as well. So we're talking anxiety and depression in numbers of more than half meeting the criteria for major depression, significant impact on women, particularly for these psychological stressors, and just talking about general physical well-being as well, these caregivers are more than twice as likely than others who are not providing care to report health conditions like heart disease and cancer and diabetes and, and general less well-being than people who are not providing care. We know that caregivers don't have as much time to care for themselves either, and so that's another spectrum of the problem is that they're less likely to engage in self-care, less likely to get their own preventative health maintenance, less likely to focus on those important things like eating well, 
personal physical activity, and they're more likely to, to have a lack or a burden of having less health insurance themselves, so less likely to seek care than they need it. And as a general, when we look at caregivers, particularly elderly caregivers that are caring for their spouses in the range of 65 and up, they actually have a general increase in, in higher mortality in the ranges of 60% higher than non-caregivers of the same age and, and with other indicators being stable. So a significant burden on, on health of this caregiver community. It's been known for some time that most of the caregivers to chronically ill patients are female. Now, is this mostly spouses or if we're dealing with children, is this daughters or both? Both. In general, up to 75% of caregivers, particularly for unpaid caregivers in the community, spouses, children, are more likely to be caregivers. And we hear of this term called kind of the sandwich generation where you have women that are caring both for their elderly parents and also for their children. And so that is a significant impact and burden and something else that's increasing during this time of the pandemic. So a female spouse has spent a fair portion of time uh, taking care of children, as probably your husband did, but uh, now has another role later in life, again, taking care of someone else. What about the number of hours that our caregivers are using or dedicating to the care of another? What do we know about that? Yeah, it takes a lot of time to be a caregiver, and so immense amount of time and hours to spend caring for a chronically ill or aging loved one. Um, The other interesting thing is that the time that it takes to be a caregiver increases as we age, and so there's probably multiple factors there. It's probably the needs of the person that we're caring for increases, especially if it's a spouse, as their functional status declines and their illness trajectory increases, but also as the caregiver ages, the time that it takes to provide care also increases too. So caregiving can really be in the the ranges of a full-time job. We look at averages of hour of care per week for the caregiver who's 65 and up to be upwards of 30 to 35 hours a week. And so a significant amount of time um, spent being a caregiver. I watched as my mother provided care to my father as he became more and more frail. And the amount of time she was devoting was almost the entire day and sometimes at night. And although they tried hiring somebody that never worked out very well, and my mother actually got quite good at providing this care. She was using a Hoyer lift and moving that thing around and uh, she became quite good at uh, many of the requirements of being a caregiver. So I guess you learn this as, as you need to. I know with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's disease, it's a very expensive disease, not so much because of the treatment or the evaluation, but because we often have a caregiver who has to give up their job in order to provide care. And I guess that's probably often true for, uh, for daughters uh, and probably sons too once in a while when they uh, have a parent Who's, uh, who's got a chronic disease. There must be a significant financial burden to providing care. And what, what do we know about that? Absolutely, the financial burden is huge. And when we think about really the overall estimated annual amounts that this unpaid labor force of caregivers that we have in the United States is immense. It's estimated to be in the range of 300 to $400 billion with a B annually. What I like to compare that to is what we um, spend in costs annually typically 
through Medicaid and Medicare for home health services or nursing home services, and it's more than twice than that. So the financial burden is huge, and we also have this unpaid labor force of caregivers that is really providing direct care that we never could from the perspective of the infrastructure that we have right now. Lots of caregivers spend money out of their own pocket. They're buying pharmaceuticals. They're paying the co-pays. They're getting other needs, groceries, things like that um, for the people that they're providing care for. And some estimates list, you know, a range of up to 20% of their personal annual income is spent caregiving. So in addition to providing the time, they're providing their own money as well to support the person that they're caring for. Certainly this has a lot of loss of work, a lot of work strain can be related to caregivers. And if we think about those hours spent providing care and then doing a full-time job and then other household or personal or self-care needs, the amount of time in the week just continues to shrink. So certainly a burden for work stress and financial stress as well for the caregivers. And in many cases, the caregiver is allowing the patient to be cared for in their home when if the caregiver weren't there, the patient would likely require skilled nursing care. So they're saving society a tremendous amount of money, if nothing else, by keeping them out of skilled care. Is there any type of financial assistance that they can get by doing this? There are, although we certainly could have an improvement in how we're compensating these caregivers that are reducing financial burden, particularly of our Medicaid and Medicare health system. The financial resources vary a lot by state, and so it's really important to look into resources that are specific to your area, looking directly at Medicaid resources, and this will vary based on the patient and their own personal resources, but there's programs Um, like Medicaid cash and counseling program that kind of really takes on a look at it as an hourly paid caregiver role for somebody that's providing direct care, even if it is a family member. There's tax benefits and tax reimbursement benefits that are increasing in states and again are very variable dependent on the state. It's really important to um, know what resources or additional support that the person that we're providing care to might have. Like, would they have VA benefits that would help them get additional care? Do they have long-term care insurance, knowing that right now they're not in a long-term care facility, but are there other resources associated with that insurance, like paid caregiver that could provide some caregiver respite to the family member providing care? There's a lot of resources that can come from elder care resources in the area. And then again, these might be variable based on where the patient resides. State units on aging can be helpful. The Family Caregiver Alliance has a lot of this information kind of together in one resource, but they will direct you to individual state resources um, where caregivers can really learn about the services and programs that are available to mostly to seniors, but also people with chronic illness living in their state and area. All right. Let's say you're a primary care provider and you are asked to assume the care of a patient who will be discharged from the hospital. Uh, This patient's going to require a great deal of home care and the spouse is planning to provide this care. As a new patient, how do you assess the caregiver? What do you look for and what do you talk to them about what they can expect? I think one of the 
first or most important things that we can do is to certainly assess who the caregiver is and how they will be providing care. Because I sometimes we assume that the person with the patient might be the one providing care or that there might be other resources that they have that we haven't discussed. And so I, I really think that identifying the caregiver is very important. I think our primary care teams, our hospital teams, and certainly our social work care management teams that are so helpful in these situations are really the best position to kind of identify caregivers and also kind of identify some of those burdens or barriers that might be there. It's important though at every level of care, wherever we touch the patient to really assess this and, and know what the issues or burdens might be so that maybe we could offset some of these things um, prior to rehospitalization or making sure that we have a safe appropriate plan. Step one though is always I think identifying who the primary caregiver is for the patient. If it's a loved one, identifying what that role is or who that person is to them because I think that helps carry through their ongoing care so that we know really who is the primary caregiver that's coming with that patient. Assessing that, you know, at our routine wellness visits, like you mentioned, discharges from the hospital or any other care transitions are really important. Or if the patient's status changes, because if they a month ago were ambulatory and um, were performing their basic ADLs and now have had multiple hospitalizations and are significantly functionally declined, that need to identify and assess the caregiver are certainly maybe more important than they were. The Assessment of the caregiver is challenging because we are often not the ones that are providing care to the caregiver. And so sometimes trying to assess the, you know, what is the functional and emotional status of the caregiver can be really a tricky thing. And often we have to have discussions about safety or burden to a caregiver that may have chronic illness or functional decline themselves. And I think that that is why or where we can best use our team members and our interdisciplinary team members to help with some of those discussions as well. The other thing that's really important in addition to assessing what the needs of the caregiver might be is what are their knowledge and skills or how can we best support them. If we need the caregiver to carry out a complex task or a complex wound treatment, we really need to make sure that they have the capacity and the skills to be able to do that, the resources and the training and support that they need. And then like we mentioned earlier, do they have the financial and, and some of the personal support needs that they need to be an effective caregiver? You mentioned something that I found really important. Just getting some additional services in the home can make so much difference. Uh, maybe taking the burden of preparing meals off of the spouse and having meals delivered or arranging for someone to come in and do the housekeeping services, things like that, just helping the caregiver take some of the burden off of what they're uh, doing can, uh, can provide a tremendous benefit to the caregiver. Now, you gave a presentation for one of uh, Mayo's CME courses that was uh, very well received. And in it, you mentioned the CARE Act, C-A-R-E, which, which we need to differentiate from the CARES Act for related to the uh, coronavirus. But what is the CARE Act and how does that relate to uh, caregivers and caregiving? The CARE Act, which is present in about 40 states now, really was helped to be identified with AARP kind of spearheading and, and helping that, but really the CARE Act is the Caregiver Advise, Record, Enable Act. 
And what this really strives to do is A, make sure that we're recording the name of the family caregiver, particularly the primary caregiver at time of admission. And the main issue that this act was trying to help with and identify with is patients would be hospitalized, we wouldn't identify a clear caregiver or there would be multiple family members, um, but who's providing care of this patient outside of the hospital, so identifying that. The second piece of that is what happens to the patient after discharge and are the family members and particularly the person that's gonna be providing direct care for the patient, have they been given adequate notice and adequate information to prepare for the patient's discharge? Do they have clear, simple instructions for the medical tasks that they need to perform at home? Um, have they been trained on the things that they need so that the caregiver feels well supported before the patient leaves the hospital so that we're not setting them up for failure uh, when the patient does return home? You also gave a caregiver checklist, which I found rather interesting, uh, a checklist to reduce the burden and improve care for patients. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I, I think this is, is extremely helpful and I always think it's better to prepare or help caregivers prepare in the time of not crisis for when the crisis occurs. So any pre-planning, any checklists, any pre-thinking, that we can do certainly can help reduce stress, particularly if the patients need to come into the hospital. I will give credit to AARP again for this checklist because they do have an online version, but also checklist for family caregivers, which is part of the outline that I had presented. But I think the main things, so there's really seven areas that we want the caregiver to prepare for. Part of this is really making sure that they have the information that they are going to need when the time of need arises. So do they have all of the information about medical issues that might arise? Do they have all of the information about who is designated as the patient's healthcare decision maker? Who do you call in an emergency? So there's basic details that you want, certainly what are the person that you're caring for's immediate needs? What are their goals? What are their important likes and dislikes? What can they do? Are they having difficulty managing finances and are we gonna need to help with that? So there's some basic details that this checklist helps identify, but then there's also kind of planning for the what ifs. So what if there's an emergency? What if we need other services, other personal services, legal professionals to help? What other support are there? Again, locating those documents like advanced directive or forms that they might need to bring into the hospital like health agent or power of attorney documentation where those are and, and keeping a record of it. And then making sure that they know kind of who the decision makers are and, and know the difference between what the patient's goals of care are and making sure that they have those documents ready to go. I think the other piece of it that is really important is to make sure because just like we ask patients when they come in, you know, to update their health history or update their medications, it's certainly important for the caregivers to have this information, have an updated and complete medical history for the patient that they can have access to, have an up-to-date medication record, and if there's medications that are important to know when and if the patient got those medications, those records, and having those accessible is, is immensely helpful. Well, maybe we can figure out a way to post that checklist on the uh, on the notes for this podcast. Now, 
We know that caregivers are going to have significant stress as they take on this responsibility. How can we be proactive as primary care providers and give them some suggestions or interventions that may reduce the impact of this stress? In kind of assessing and talking with the caregivers and what their burden might be, I think two of the main important points are uh, what is the caregiver's understanding of where things are at right now and kind of what the person that they're caring for trajectory of illness is? Because if we have a very large gap between where things are at realistically and where things might be going and the caregiver's understanding of that, that's maybe one place to start. The other thing to assess and kind of talk about in, in visits, particularly if the caregiver is present, is again, what are those things that might be burdensome, the you know logistical, financial, psychological burdens and barriers, but also what's their support system outside of being a caregiver. I always try to make a point of asking the caregiver how they're doing and what they need. And, and most of the time it's pretty well received. And a lot of times people feel as a caregiver, they're not asked that enough. So just even asking and taking the time to, aside from the patient that we're focused on and directing our care at, is just pausing to assess some of the, the basic needs and support of the caregiver as well. Well, finally, can you give our listeners maybe two or three key points summarizing what you feel are the important issues surrounding providing care to our caregivers? Yeah, one of the main points I think really is that caregiver stress, strain, and burden is very, very common, is immensely important work, um, and is often overlooked. So I think that would be one of the first points is to just make an effort to, to recognize those caregivers that are providing direct care and know that it is a, is a heavy load. The other thing would be to, you know, have some tools to assess caregiver burden, both for the well-being of the patient, but also for the caregiver to make sure that we're identifying who that caregiver is so that we can continue to provide some of those check-ins and helpful resources and maybe get them the additional resources or support that they might need to be able to take the best care of the patient, but also of themselves. And finally, I would just say that in addition to the caregiver checklist, there are a lot of resources, some of them underutilized. I wish there was more resources, but there is a lot. So in addition to the AARP caregiver checklist, there's many, many apps that can help with caregiver burden and caregiver tools that can keep track of medications, share with family members about who might be doing what. So utilize those tools because in the time of technology, they may be able to reduce some of the burden and the strain on caregivers. And we also know that helping the caregiver to, to have more of um, some time for self-reflection, mindfulness, um, and caregiver well-being will help the caregiver to better support our patients. And so helping to give them or identify some of those tools will certainly be helpful. We've been discussing providing care to our caregivers with Dr. Alicia Morgan, a palliative care physician and geriatrician at the Mayo Clinic. Alicia, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. You, you. can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.